Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Narcissism is a very big help because if it's narcissism you can constantly talk about yourself so you never run out of material. Um, you know, and I wrote a, I wrote a book in Difficult Women that was a history of feminism that had some memoir in it. And I was thinking, this is really bad because these sections are really quite easy to write. There's a kind of cheap uh, shock value to writing very revelatory stuff about yourself, right? So in a way you think, oh, do I really want to publish stuff about my divorce and my sex life and all this kind of stuff? Um, and that, I think, sort of feels synthetically um, hard work like it, it feels like it's cost you something but actually in terms of the nitty-gritty of the prose writing it's not the same as having to research from scratch something that happened in 1870. I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. My guest today is just as obsessed as I am by all of the things, and I put all of the things in knowing inverted commas, which is to say all of the things that make me wonder if the world has turned mad or whether it is just next level fascinating, or both. She is also one of the fastest minds I've ever encountered. Okay, so Helen Lewis is a British journalist and BBC broadcaster and currently a staff writer for The Atlantic magazine. And she has a substack called The Blue Stocking, which should give an indication of her commitment to the feminist cause. She writes about truly gritty stuff, phenomenon we might notice, but she puts it into words that call it. They, it calls it elegantly and without any kind of dithering apology. The best writers in the world, to my mind, and I think Helen Lewis is one such, are those who leave their readers going, that's exactly what I've been thinking, even if they hadn't. Recent topics that Helen has skewered include the rise of TikTok ticks in teenagers, the whole Harry and Megan thing, Andrew Tate, who she was once asked to join on a podcast in debate, she declined. Uh, the absurdities of US and UK politics and all the best bits of life in 2023. Her best-selling book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights, makes the wild point that it's always been difficult women that changed the world. And her new book, The Selfish Genius, flips all the ridiculous myths that surround creativity on its head. It's fun stuff. But I've got to say, Helen's probably best known for going super viral with her interview with Jordan Peterson for GQ back in 2018, just as he was exploding onto our ragey radars. 
and we're all trying to fathom how he managed to bamboozle anyone who interviewed him into a dissonant dissent. A conservative reading of it is that she held her own, and in doing so, to my mind, Helen exposed Jordan Peterson for all his trickeries and bad faith shortcomings. Now, Helen's most recent project is a BBC podcast series called The New Gurus, in which she looks at the rise of wellness grifters, the intellectual dark web messiahs, the wokists, oh, and butthole sunners. We kind of cover it all in this chat, and so it's a little longer than usual. I was going to split it into two episodes, but I think two episodes annoys people. I don't know. I may have that wrong. That said, you can also join Helen and I over at my Substack. This is precious. It's sarahwilson.substack.com, and I'll put all of that in the show notes as we talk through our tips for remaining sane amid all the noise. Uh, Helen shares a productivity tip, which I also use, a writing tip, two podcasts she highly recommends, two Substack newsletters to follow, the book you need to read, and I think a journalist um, that she really recommends following. Anyway, let's meet our brilliant guest, Helen Lewis. Uh, Helen Lewis, um, I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. I've followed your work for quite some time. Your brain fascinates me. I love it. I love the dance that you do on all the podcasts. But look, I floundered on as to what to focus on because I usually focus on one wild thing that a big mind has contributed to the universe. But in your case, you kind of dance all the wild things. So what I figured I'd do is I'd cherry pick a few of the juiciest stuff, the chunkiest stuff that you cover off, stuff that I love thinking about. And we'll just go through the big long list and see how far we get into it. Does that suit? Okay. I don't think, yeah, I don't think I've got one big wild thing. I've got several medium-sized, slightly undomesticated things in my life, but uh, yeah, so we can <laughs> we can dance through them together. Okay. Well, let's start with your new podcast, um, The New Gurus, which I listened to over the Christmas break um, on long road trips. It's fascinating. Um, it's available everywhere. You did it with the BBC. It tracks the phenomenon of online messiahs, um, which we've covered off here on Wild a number of times. Um, we had Matt Brown on from Decoding the Gurus. Um, I've I've covered it a fair bit on my Substack as well. I'm fascinated by this whole realm, um, and it's this realm of sort of everyday people who give all kinds of advice on Bitcoin, wellness, butthole sunning. You'll have to listen to the podcast to know what that's about. Um, conspiracies, and of course, the intellectual dark web with all of the galaxy brain gurus. And I kind of think it's a bit of a Rorschach test for where we're at in life at the moment. Um, you know, all of our fear, our lacking, and our desire to cling when we're in the presence of uncertainty. And I'm just wondering what it was specifically that fascinated you about this realm. Um, I think a couple of different things, one of which you've already highlighted, which is that idea of the age of uncertainty. And I think it's both the age of uncertainty generally, the idea of kind of institutional fragility, but also personal uncertainty. You know, when you go to a guru is when you're looking for something, you know, you've experienced some change in your life or you're restless or you're searching. Um, so people, you know, look at the, they, they want to, when they're looking for love, they might be somebody, you know, or they want to make money, you know, so that's, they end up looking at crypto gurus or whatever it might be. So it's both personal uncertainty and a kind of wider sense of 
anxiety, which we get to in the last episode, which is all about predicting the future and the kind of, in you know, natural human desire throughout all of probably recorded human history to have someone tell us it's all going to be okay. Or if it's not going to be okay, tell us when it's not going to be okay and how it's not going to be okay, right? But the, what, the one thing that we hate is uncertainty. And I had done some work for the BBC before that in a documentary called The Church of Social Justice, which was about whether or not um, traditional religion was being replaced by kind of well, whatever you want to call it, wokeness was kind of the, the word that we were using yeah. at the time. I know it's now seen as very pejorative, but social justice. Um, and, you know, for me, that was something that really came through in that I was raised Catholic and then I became very interested in new atheism and then feminism. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not a member of a church now, but, you know, I have written from within particular social movements and I was really interested in the, the linkages between the two of them. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well, isn't it? It's it these these big gurus don't necessarily just wade around and provide solutions in the realm of uncertainties. They also stoke the fires of uncertainty and create these these realms where it's like there's us over here and there's this other out there, the enemy um, who we've got to protect ourselves against. So they actually create more of what they're trying to protect us from. I like the fact that, and I hadn't really quite clocked this before, that being the kind of flawed healer is a really big guru archetype. So you end up with these dating gurus. And, you know, you think on your surface, the person you want to take dating advice would be off of somebody who's very happily married, right? <laughs> like if that's your eventual what you want, then that you think that's what you would hear from them. Um, and actually what end up often happening is they've been through several divorces and you think, Really, if you're in your fourth divorce, you know, I mean, I know hope springs eternal, but have you really got it all figured out? Uh, and that, but that's not a barrier or people who are, you know, on their own or whatever it might be. Um, so I think there's more about the idea that somebody understands you and gets you in some deep level is more important than the idea of having all the answers. Somebody who sees you and, and, and you're right, part of that can be a very strong in-group, out-group, you know, um, I'm sure Matt Brown will have talked to you about this um, when he was here. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember that conversation. But So stop me if I'm re- repeating him. But that idea of, uh, of kind of everybody's against us, only I'm listening to you. You know, we're the, we're the true people. We're being kept down. No one's really recognizing your, your true potential. I, you know, I was thinking about the fact that two of the biggest um, pop culture moments, actually, in my lifetime, in terms of ones that really caught on in, in mm. internet spheres, one would be Harry Potter, which is the story of some very normal looking kid who finds out that he's essentially been chosen by, you know, not by God, but by some alchemical process to be the savior of the world. And then The Matrix, which is the story of a very normal guy in a cubicle in an office who finds out through some alchemical process that he has been chosen to be the savior of the world. And both of those have ended up, Harry Potter had a huge fandom online. The Matrix is now the kind of touchstone, the red pill community for huge amounts of... IDW and Manosphere people. And so it's really interesting that both of them have gravitated towards pop culture that's all about maybe you're the one. Maybe, you know, you look normal, but you've got so much more to give. And that's obviously an incredibly potent message now. And it also fits into this whole uh, anti-expert realm, right? Like we we just don't believe in institutions. We think, you know, um, pointy-head scientists have got it all wrong and we probably prefer this magical thinking stuff. Like why not, you know? They're probably going to know just as much as these experts. There's a real, there's a real distrust, I think, of professionals. Yeah, but it's, yeah, which is also, again, a kind of, 
narcissism, right? The idea that I should be able to understand vaccine science as well as an epidemiologist if I just go and do my own research. And that is one of the cliches of crypto, D-Y-O-R, do your own research. And like, I'm very happy to throw my hands up in the air and say, I don't understand high frequency trading. I don't understand what it would be to be a quant. Like all of these things are just, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a word cell. All these things are way outside my competence. And if any, if I did my own research, I still don't think I would get there on it on its own. But these are sort of flattering ways to, to tell people that they are just as smart as all these people who are earning so much money and they could find these things out themselves. And so I think that's how the anti-expert thing works. Because if, if they're not experts, then you'll get, you're the expert. You're the ultimate authority. And it all goes back to the self again. Mm, sovereignty and all of that kind of thing. And you brought up the idea of the galaxy brain as well. You know, these people who we just let them be an expert on everything, you know, like it's Yeah, it's and it goes back a really long time. I mean, I've been writing this book on genius and one of the things I don't think we'll find make the final draft, but um, I've been looking at the history of IQ researchers and it's not a happy history. People who get involved in intelligence research have a kind of slightly you know, marked tendency to go bad in various ways. One of whom is William Shockley, who was one of the Nobel team that got um, at Bell Labs who invented the transistor. He kind of glommed on to some other people, to be honest with you on that. But he then became somebody who just talked constantly about race and intelligence in, in these very deeply provocative ways. And part of that was the feeling that he had got, that he got a Nobel he was a smart guy, capital smart, mm. capital guy, right? And therefore, of course, he also knew a huge amount about genetics and, and evolutionary biology. And I think that's something that we encourage a bit too much, which is why I'm really interested in the figure of the genius, is the idea that there are all-purpose smart people. And in the era of high specialization, that has never been less true. You know, you can be incredibly smart, but you also really spend 20 years learning about something to have a truly original contribution to make to a field. We'll come back to that book that I think is coming out soon. <laughs> when you finish writing it about uh, the selfish genius. But one of your episodes uh, is about Russell Brand. And I have to make a confession here. I was a guest on his podcast, Under the Skin, in 2019. I'm interested in your take. I've obviously followed him. I find him incredibly fascinating. How did he explode to, I think, at 6.2 million followers and looking like Jesus Christ? Like, how did this happen? I mean, I met him in 2014, I think it was, when I was um, then the... So by then I was the deputy editor. Anyway, I was, I, yeah, I was deputy editor of New Statesman, which is a British left-leaning political magazine. And he came to do a guest edit, which is about the revolution of consciousness. I remember um, that issue. It was a big, it was a big themed issue, wasn't it? On sort yeah, of exactly. They had a Shepherd Fairy cover yep. with a big light bulb on the front. It had some really interesting pieces in it. He wrote a long essay in it himself. We'd got David Lynch on transcendental meditation and, you know, various uh, other pieces like that a piece by Alec Baldwin on conspiracy theories that I think I probably hope has been buried in landfill somewhere. God knows what that says. But um, it was... Yeah, Portent it was, of what's to come. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, but he, you know, I just remember him coming into the editorial meeting uh, and he is, to my mind, the kind of quintessential celebrity, the quintessential comedian of somebody who... I, you know, and this sounds like a very harsh thing to say, and I don't mean that some of my best friends are comedians, but almost wouldn't know who he was without an audience, right? He's on, and that's how he he lives his life. And and then, you know, I would say he's in the top one percent of extroversion as a character trait. And very few people are like that. You know, you said in your introduction about these kind of ordinary people giving out advice, and I'm not sure that they are ordinary. I think you have to have a you know score in very particular ways on some on a lot of characteristic traits to be able to really succeed and thrive in this space. Like narcissism. And, 
narcissism is a very big help because if it's narcissism, you can constantly talk about yourself. So you never run out of material. Um, you know, and I wrote, a, I wrote a book in Difficult Women that was a history of feminism that had some memoir in it. And I was thinking, this is really bad because these sections are really quite easy to write. There's a kind of cheap uh, shock value to writing very revelatory stuff about yourself, right? So in a way, you think, oh, do I really want to publish stuff about my divorce and my sex life and all this kind of stuff? Um, and that, I think, sort of feels synthetically um, hard work. Like, it, it feels like it's cost you something. But actually, in terms of the nitty-gritty of the prose writing, it's not the same as having to research from scratch something that happened in 1870. Mm, totally um, agree. And you know what I mean, though? It's, it's, it, it looks like... Mm, it's a different type of effort. Like it costs you a lot to put your life out there and have other people pick over it and disagree with your interpretation of events. There is a cost like that, but it is not the same cost as spending a month in the library trying to find a document. Um, and so I think that, you know, the people who want to talk about themselves all the time are, are, are kind of rare breed, but one which flourishes on, on YouTube. And one of the things that, um, a woman called Alice Dreger said to me in the course of researching the series, which I think blew my mind, was about the fact that they said the best activists are often narcissists because they associate themselves with the cause and therefore they can constantly talk about the cause all the time. And so I thought about someone like Emmeline Pankhurst of the suffragettes, you know, it's actually votes for women, but it's actually votes for me and I mm. should be allowed to vote. And, and, I, and that sort of suddenly struck me that that's, you know, that is something that really helps you succeed in lots and lots of areas of life. Yeah, and, and you apply that to Russell Brand, right? Like he is able to do this free-flowing spiel and, and it's so fast. It is so fast. You can't even sort of absorb the information. There's no pauses. And it's, it is Jesus-like. It, it sort of just keeps coming and coming and um, very little reflection. And these points are made uh, that are pretty pretty full on these days. I mean, he's gone down a number of conspiracy theory holes, but there's no um, accountability. And I think that's another issue. I mean, you're a journalist, I'm a trained journalist as well. Um, my mind is blown that these people can say these things without any references or even, even just some tangible examples would, would probably cut it for me. Um, but it's just spiel. Yeah, and I think that's another reason why I wanted to do this series now because... I don't think a lot of this would have been possible without YouTube culture and podcast culture, which is an oral culture, because it's not about making your arguments in dry, sober prose with 15 footnotes. It's about a performance and being having to be able to have a conversational style that is really captivating and takes people along with you. And if you can get them on side with jokes, so much the better. Or if you can get them on side with a kind of preacher-like cadence where you build to these kind of great orations. So all of that, I think, is, is you know, in twenty. 10, 20, 2005, it wouldn't work quite the same way, as does the mm. economics, frankly, of like the podcast ecosystem, right? In that you can go on Russell Brand's podcast and then you can go on someone else's podcast and you can do sort of six degrees of Kevin Bacon podcast, right? Where in the end you've been on, everyone you know has been on a podcast with everyone else that, that you know. If you're a bro, if you're a bro, it's a real bro circle. Um, I don't it, see the women doing that dance. It is a real bro circle. And so I'm doing a bonus episode at the moment of the series. And one of the things that's come up consistently as I've talked about it is why are all these people men? Why are all these people oh, men? Oh, wonderful. Because I know that you guys, when you were on the Decoding the Gurus podcast, um, I think Matt or Chris asked you that question. And there was a little bit of a discussion about it. And I was, I remember I was uh, driving interstate at the time going, oh, but it's this and it's this. And then I actually asked Matt about it when I had him on my podcast. 
I know, um, he deferred to me very pleasingly, which is uh, what I always encourage men to do at all times. That's, that doesn't happen often. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's this idea of, um, I think the narcissistic slant to all of this is is really telling. Um, I remember when I was editor of Cosmo, we did a story on narcissistic personality disorder, and I think the statistics are something like 90% of people with this disorder are men. Uh, there's obviously a correlation here. Um, yeah, you know, there's, there's some really interesting sex differences in some of the big psychological movements of our age, right? I was just um, reading a New York Times piece about these um, TikTok ticks, you know, the sort of Tourette's-like yes. epidemic, which I wrote about last year. They've now done a follow-up piece this year because it, the, the tide has now gone out. All the people who got sort of diagnosed with it last year, um, they found out that it was functional. It was not Tourette's. It didn't need to be treated with drugs. It needed to be treated with cognitive behavioural therapy and, frankly, so was, spending less time on the internet. So just and clarifying, those, these are tips yeah. that teenagers and so on were picking up from emulating other TikTok people doing the same thing. It was sort of right. almost... Not consciously, but it was yes. imitative, and it and it was almost all female. Um, now, not all of them identified as girls, but natally female, um, and that is the case with almost all outbreaks of whatever you want to call it, mass hysteria or sociogenic illnesses. Women are, seem to be much more susceptible to like social contagions, essentially, in that particular form. Right. And I wonder if that's because, you know, women maybe place more emphasis on social bonds. They're more likely to seek peer support. They're more likely to have tightly nascent, you know, networks of approval. Whereas the kind of counterpoint to that is maybe men are more likely to kind of hold forth and, you know, mm-hmm. tap the wine glass and, and, and expect to be listened to. And those are just sort of things that, you know, there's people at the extremes of each end. I wouldn't say it's, you know, all men are like this and all women are like this ever. But those are two sort of, you know, humps yeah. that are kind of quite far away from each other. We can we can see that patterning. I mean, just to bring in a very contemporary example, I have witnessed over the years many yoga teachers and um, I witnessed how the male yoga teachers within 12 months or so of becoming a teacher, they go from sort of being on the ground with you to almost being on a pulpit, you know, um, and it seems to be a trajectory that can't be defied, whereas the female teachers for 20 years can be very grounded, don't get above their rank, um, and it's a really perceivable difference. Now, there doesn't have to be judgment attached there, um, but there is definitely something going on there, and I think it does play out in the fact that so many of these new gurus, particularly in the intellectual dark web, ah, man, you're a bit of an exception because you go on a number of these different podcasts, and I'm not saying you're going on the Joe Rogans and the Lex Friedmans, but you're going on some of these podcasts who have you know, are a little in this circle um, and you hold your own. It's wonderful. Yeah, but I, I mean, I, again, I, I don't know. I think that's probably just a personality thing in the sense that I've always had male friends. I've always been really comfortable. I think for a woman, I'm just unusually kind of bro <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Maybe I am. I'm just, I am quite bro I mean, I've got, you know, I've got lots of female friends as well, but I'm, I'm not, I don't have a problem with, um, you know, sort of going, hey, I've got some opinions, would you like to hear them? Which I think is mm. quite a hard thing for lots of women to do. They don't feel like they, like, why should anyone listen to me? Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, so I, I think I flourish in male-dominated environments. But that's so interesting about Joe Rogan because so many of the big podcasts are now like middle-aged men talking to other middle-aged men. And in a way that actually if you were, you know, the organization like the BBC or ABC, you wouldn't be allowed to get away with, right? But there's clearly a huge demand for it. Like two of the biggest podcasts here are, politicians, Rory Stewart talking to Alistair Campbell, that's two middle-aged men, and then uh, Dominic Sandbrook talking to 
Tom Holland, which is two middle-aged men, and they're talking about history. And they are both huge, like sell out the Royal Albert yeah. Hall huge. And it is quite clear to me that they're what the, part of the appeal specifically is that it's guys, like in the guy zone. And I, I wouldn't describe any of those people as bros. They're all quite nerdy in their own no, way. yeah. But it is, it is like... And, and Dominic Samaritan says kind of explicitly, you know, this wouldn't be allowed on the BBC. They'd make one of us present something with a, with a younger woman. And, it, you know, and that's probably true. And it's probably true that some of the audience wouldn't like that as much. Yeah. I think the, the other thing, I mean, there's so much hypocrisy in this realm because I know that Russell Brand in his early days and a, a lot of these um, bros were talking about notions of equality and the patriarchy and systems and power structures. And yet um, there's incredible hypocrisy that goes on. All of them uh, you know, I'd say Sam Harris is an exception here. He's an exception for a bunch of reasons, I suppose. But all of them make money from selling products um, to, to, to their vulnerable audience, um, protein powders, green things, mattresses, the whole thing. Um, so it's kind of interesting. And not just small amounts of money to keep them going. I mean, we're talking huge incomes. And then you've got Russell Brand, who is very vocally anti-media. Now, in 2023, who is the media when what his audience is 6.2 million? That would be that would eclipse what the Times, the Guardian. Um, yeah, that's you know, probably, like, yeah, and it's not far off the Daily Reads that you something like the Guardian website, which is an incredibly popular website, will get in terms of its visitorship. Yeah, I know, but it's all about the pose of anti-establishment, isn't it? Like that's all the grievance so mongering key, as well. So key to everything guru related but you're right I think there's a whole series to be done just about the adverts I'm absolutely fascinated um I was listening to Chris Williamson's podcast Modern Wisdom and his adverts are like go on a retreat with other men to like shoot animals and then eat them and I was just like this is camping what's happening is you're selling people camping for thousands of dollars. And, Were you listening and, and, to your own episode, by the way? I was, of course, listening to my morning, own episode, This yes. morning, I was, while I was getting ready, I was listening to that episode that you did with him and heard the exact same adverts going, what the fuck? Like, did you, it, did you also think it's like $250 off? I was like, how expensive is this camping? Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't make, you couldn't pay me $250 to make me go camping. Certainly not in Australia where the chances of, like death are much higher than they are in the most parts of the British countryside. But anyway, that's but that's you know that's what it takes men to feel alive these days. It's, yeah, you know, shitting in a bucket and worrying about snakes. So you're doing an extra episode on this kind of echo chamber, this bro echo chamber. Are there any sort of insights that you can share on that front in terms of where it's heading, why it's happening, what it's serving? Yeah, I mean, I think for the audience is interesting in the sense that. Um, one of the things that we've been exploring is about whether or not male dominated spaces have kind of died out to some extent, you know, um, is there a kind of mm. desire to recreate digitally what a, a working man's club would have been once, right? We've, mm. you know, we've moved in, in the only space of one or two generations from a model where lots of men would have worked out of the home all day while their wife was at home. Then they maybe would have gone out to a bar afterwards with their mates. And then, you know, the, that, that, to the idea that you now have you now hang out with friends of both sexes and maybe your kids and everything's much more family friendly that you, those the sort of divided household no longer exists and maybe there is a certain hunkering for some of that back again I, I I wonder if it's that I also think with some of the manosphere influences there's an incredible adolescence to um so much of it the um 
the internet service Vice, they made a documentary with a guy called Matt Shea. It's brilliant. When they he went to Andrew Tate's compound in Romania. Yes. It's now available. I think in Australia you'll be able to watch it online. It's I couldn't on the BBC see it here. Yeah, but I've um I've read your commentary on it on your list stocking um Substack. My Substack, because I do, of course, have a Substack, as we all do. We're cliches, I do too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who hasn't? Podcast and a Substack. Um, but, um, and also listen to the link, the web, uh, I think a, a podcast you recommended. Is yeah. it Nikki somebody or other? Oh, Nikki, Nikki. Wolf um, for Tortoise, yeah, mm. in which he went which and talked to some boys who were interested. But when I watched that, and he goes to his Romanian compound and Andrew Tate gets his big sword out and he's got these sort of scantily clad women scampering around the place and he's got his Lamborghinis out the front. I was like, oh my God, this is Grand Theft Auto. I'm watching Grand Theft Auto. And that's something that like, you know, when you're 13, probably seems very cool. That's what adult. What you think cool adult life looked at. When you're over 30, you're like, that's quite cringe. There was. <laughs> have you not thought about just having a sit down and a cup of tea? But he's living a kind of, of, of teenage adolescent fantasy, and obviously, brilliantly, that Vice documentary brings out the really unpleasant allegations of um, sexual assault and human mm. trafficking, which, for which he's under arrest currently. But it also just said to me that this lifestyle is this is not this is being marketed to a very specific segment of kids who are really kind of too young to be on social media to some extent, right? You're talking really under 15s. Um, And I'm just not sure when you get to 19 or 20, I think most people will have aged out of it. I think some people won't have done, but I think lots of boys by that point will have actually found a girlfriend or boyfriend and they won't be up for watching some guy play with his sword online anymore. Yeah, see, I think a lot of people are very surprised. I mean, Andrew Tate really hit the radar since that documentary and we became aware of the allegations in Romania and so on. But I think um, people have been very surprised that it's not sort of young men, it's actually teenage boys that are into all of this. And there was a study, this might interest you, uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago uh, by, I think it's called Man Cave, an organisation that represents men here in Australia. Of course it's called Man Cave. Love it. Love uh, a Man yeah. Cave. Yeah. yeah, look it up. Um, they actually do quite progressive stuff, which is good. Um, but they found that uh, they did a big survey and found that one in three, I think, boys aged 14 to 16 think Andrew Tate's a dude. Really dig him. So that's significant. Um, so, yeah, it's it's teenage boys. But, um, look, I don't know how this segues. It kind of does, but into Jordan Peterson. Um, well, yeah, from, it all well, segues. actually, in a way, that's kind of interesting because one of the, the nice things you could say about OG Jordan Peterson, I'm not talking about post-coma Jordan Peterson so much, was that he wasn't offering that kind of adolescent power fantasy, right? He was offering specifically a grown-up form of masculinity that mm. was about taking responsibility, about self-actualization, about make yourself someone who is worthy of respect. And that was one of the things I think we probably should give him credit for is that mm. actually lots of the manosphere is like, Here's how to get loads of bitches and then give them a slap if they don't do what you want. And that was not him at all. He was not that. Yeah, I read his book. And, um, you know, I mean, 12 rules, make your bed. There were a bunch of things like that. It kind of reminded me of the self-help books geared at women from 20 years earlier. And I was like, okay, they're catching up, you know, Um, make your bed. But it, it, you know, and I spoke to a lot of young men who said, who really identified that they felt very wobbly in an uncertain world and he was a man saying get certain get solid you know he was sort of providing that stake in the ground for them and I and, and that's how I became fascinated in because I was speaking to young men I did this big hike across the desert and um 
there was a 22-year-old who I, he sort of followed me around <laughs> and wanted to talk to me about all of this. And I sort of really got an insight into the service that, you know, that JP provided. But, of course, um, he went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Before we go on to Jordan Peterson, can I just touch back on to Andrew Tate? Mm. I think I read somewhere or heard you say that you were asked to join him on a podcast to have, a, you know, a, sort of a debate but you yeah. declined. Can you tell me yeah. why you declined? I mean, kind of obvious, but still interested. <laughs> I'd rather go put my hand into a blender. Well, <laughs> I, I, you know, the reason that I declined, I had done, I mean, I've been doing writing about feminism for God knows how long now, uh, maybe since like 2011, 2012, I guess, when, since when I moved to the New Statesman. So I had lived through several iterations of kind of feminist kind of crazes and talking, and, and I had written about men's rights activists in the mid twenty. Tens, and I went on um, Women's Hour, which is a BBC program with one of them. Um, and I'm afraid I just absolutely brutalised the poor lad. He really was not ready for it at all. But he had all this weird stuff about how, like, he was angry about gay penguins or something. There was definitely something related to penguins. Um, and I was just like, so this <laughs> thing about penguins. Fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, how offensive it is that men have to wear ties and it's a double standard. And I was like, well, okay, so I can see that it's tough. But, you know, on the other hand, Let's look at all the you know places you can still get stoned to death for adultery. So come see, come sir. But um, you know, so I felt I had kind of done that. Uh, and you know, the thing is, like with the Peterson debate, that um, I was pleased to have done it. And I don't, I but I genuinely have no idea what the net effect of that was. Was the net effect of that to? Uh, draw more people onto content, particularly the way the YouTube algorithm was structured at the time that then took them onto more and more extreme content. And I still get emails all the time now that are either thanking me for having done it or saying I used to really like his content, but actually now I think, you know, I I come back and watch it again. So there are obviously people who, you know, didn't um, take a bad message from it. But I, I just, I don't know whether or not, the sort of fetishization of debate I'm just not sure I buy anymore. It, it, mm. it, it, I think it's really good when you feel like it's, and say what you like about Jordan Peterson, a smart guy with a PhD, a background in research, clearly a wide ranging intellect. You know, he was somebody who was, had interesting big ideas that were kind of, you know, I thought very messy and I couldn't quite work out how they were fitted together, but they were, God, they were interesting. There was a lot of there there. And I just felt with Andrew Tate, there's nothing there. This guy's always wanted to be famous. He tried being a you know reality TV star. Now he's trying to be an internet star. He doesn't believe anything except he wants people to listen to him. And he's just found a, a way to, to do that. And what what is going to happen? Yeah. I could go on and dunk on him with my benefit of my Oxford degree. And then people would just be like, oh, look at this smarmy cow who thinks, you know, she's such, so she's so stuck up. Or I could just let him say a load of gross things about how women, you know, are asking to be raped. But yeah. I think a lot about the fact there's a great saying, you know, Richard Dawkins, evolutionary biologist, kept getting asked to debate by creationists all the time. And he quoted, I think, some other professor who had once said, that would look great on your CV, not so good on mine. Mm, and I yeah. sort of think that's the point, isn't it? Andrew Tate exists to have internet arguments and say incredibly divisive things. I I don't. I mean, I do occasionally have internet arguments, but I exist to try and do reported stuff that illuminates the world. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, So so that was a very long-winded way of saying also the idea of having to talk to him for an hour made me want to cry. Yeah, yeah. Or put your hand in a blender. I think, yeah, there's these these kinds of debates and just 
gnarly fights and and squabbles going on over there and then over here we do need people like you doing long form considered research stuff and you're better put to use over there you've got finite hours on this planet please stay over in this corner (laughs) well that's what I liked about that vice documentary because they juxtapose very effectively a very tabloidy kind of like look inside the compound and here's his mad retreat in Transylvania where men go and beat each other up and like here's the whole vibe but Woven through that was the testimony of the women who had felt the the brunt of what this male power fantasy really looks like. What are the conditions required to fulfill that? And I thought that was really smart because on its own, one bit of it would have been a kind of sensationalist and the other bit of it would have been a bit of eat your greens journalism. Um, And actually fusing the two of them together, I thought was really innovative and and good because it's not just giving him a platform. It's it's presenting him as an entity and showing you the consequences of all of it. Yeah, and I think that that's what's changed since 2018 when you did the Jordan Peterson um, piece for for GQ. Um, I think that the debate, the number of people in this space and the sheer reach that these people, the algorithms, the algorithmic damage is is that much worse today. But let's go back to Jordan Peterson. Um, You know, there was, you cover him, I think, in your Intellectual Dark Web episode and you interviewed David Fuller uh, from Rebel Wisdom or he he used to run Rebel Wisdom. I interviewed him as well. Mm. He's on an episode from about I'm thinking a year ago Um, and obviously you know when I met him I was struck by the fact that he was grieving his sort of divorce, his intellectual divorce from Jordan Peterson. And it, it happened quite recently. It only just sort of clocked onto it. That, and he was really sad about it. Can you just give a bit of an insight into why? I mean, David Fuller's a super smart guy. Um, yeah. And he covers all kinds of interesting stuff. And he's had to divorce himself from this whole realm. But how did guys like that get sucked in? What was the appeal of Jordan Peterson? You, you've referred to him as bright and so on. But what was it exactly that, you know, really got people going? I mean, one of the things that I asked David, who left Channel 4 News, you know, he he, he fell in love with the lectures, you know, these kind of um, Jungian analysis. And, um, and and he went and he sort of, I think we ended up comparing him interviewing Jordan Peterson. You know, he travelled all the way to Canada to interview him. This was sort of pre-fame. Um, to like be going to watch the Super Bowl, like it was his Super Bowl. It was something that really was a huge deal in his life. And he said he was just kind of captivated by watching the lectures on YouTube. But I said to him, you know, do you think he was a father figure? Were you looking for a, a, a sort of substitute father figure? And he said, I don't think that's a ridiculous question. You know, I've asked myself that question, you know, too. And and I wonder how much of that it, it was that, that he he liked having somebody who fulfilled that role of being, stern and wise. I don't know. There's a whole genre of TV that's a bit like that, right? Uh, I've been watching Slow Horses. I don't know if you've seen it with um, Gary Oldman as a kind of, he's a kind of crusty old spy master and he's got a kind of gang of no hopers. But it's that kind of character where you think everything's lost and then he will pop up having been aware that things were going badly all along and having sorted out secretly in the background. Or like um, House with Hugh Laurie, right? Where he will always, at the end, turn up and and save the day because he will work Mm. out it's not lupus. And we're really attracted to those characters where it's going to be like you see them and you know it's going to be all right because they never lose. And I think there was something of that quality about Peterson that he had it, he had it, you know, he had it all. Um, He was willing to be looked up to. He he kind of accepted that that role. But you're right. The reason that I, I wanted to talk to David for that episode was because for me, watching Jordan Peterson's, I would say, spiral, particularly over the last two years, 
has been, you know, upsetting in a way, I guess. It's never nice to see somebody who looks like they're really not in control of themselves like that. Um, but it's not a personal grief because I never liked him in the first place. You know, I was at best mm. sort of neutral to him, if not sort of skeptical. Whereas, you know, David lost something and that's quite, mm. quite powerful. And I, and, and I wanted to talk to someone who had felt those kind of deep emotions that people who are followers feel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people felt that way and didn't quite know where to place things. Um, and, you know, well, Jordan Peterson disappeared for about a year, wasn't it, in the Russian, the Russian uh, rehab clinic? Was it a year? Yeah, essentially like, like the first one. year of co- most of 2020 and then he only came back the summer after that, I think, and then published the book at the, over, sort of over the Christmas period then. Yeah. Mm. And he hasn't been the same since. Like those videos that he now does, the YouTube videos for his new podcast, I mean, some of them are weird. And he's come out and said some really nasty things, some really sensationalist headline-grabbing, algorithm-sticky things. Yeah, I mean, I saw a bit of him on the last appearance on Joe Rogan, which was I think, the second time since the coma that he's been on. And he was actually sort of laughing in a slightly self-deprecating way. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, this looks much mm. better. This looks much more like he's sort of happy. Like I think he had sort of genuine anhedonia for a while. Um, just this What's complete anhedonia? inability. Oh, inability to feel happiness. Um, ah, okay. It's the original title of the film Annie Hall. It was, it was originally going to be called Anhedonia. Anyway, because it was about <laughs> Willie, Woody Allen's like inability to feel happiness. Um, so, yeah, so I, I you know, I, I think that I, I thought that's better, but then you see the fact that he's tweeting every three minutes, you know, um, and it's just, it's, it's like the, to go back to the galaxy brainness, right? Which is the decoding the guru's phrase for somebody who just got absolutely massive takes on everything, Scro- you know, going through biology, climate change, physics you know, really extraordinary hatred of Justin Trudeau, the Canadian prime minister, um, you know, sense of grievance about the people, the fact that he, he might lose his professional license, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Like it's just, it's, he's just living in this sort of like Tasmanian devil world constantly yeah. of opinions and facts and people coming back to him and saying how much they love him versus how much they hate him. I just, you know, I find it quite hard to watch really. I, I it's going to be a very weird comparison, but it does feel like that kind of bit where Amy Winehouse was just obviously going out and getting totally. smashed every night. And you were like, why isn't anybody stopping this? And of course, no one can stop this except the person themselves. So it's yeah. entirely with his own, within his own gift to act as, as he wants. But I don't like to, I don't take any pleasure from it. I don't like to watch it. Mm. One thing I was going to ask though, and it fascinated me years ago, and then I watched your interview with him. Um, how many times has it been viewed now like 50 million times have I you, believe have last time quizzed? I checked it was um 60 million because he tweeted Six. about the fact that like 60 million people agree with me which <laughs> seems to reflect the fact that he believes that every single person he watched it I agree if you got if you read the YouTube comments you would take that impression so maybe he's correct mm, okay but at least um, like five of my friends and maybe my mum have watched it and didn't agree with them so there is <laughs> some they... counterbalance yeah <laughs> um I have been fascinated for quite a long time and it's been the subject of many late night, you know, staring at the ceiling um, reflections. Sadly, yes, I lie awake thinking about Jordan Peterson. But I have been trying to really nail what it is that he does to so often be able to win his arguments. And I use the word win in inverted commas because for him it really is about winning the argument. And I see it as a whole heap of very bad faith arguing um, you know, he uses a bunch of stunts. And I'm wondering what you think of this take, 
please disagree with me because you've sat in a room with him and, and debated him for, for several hours. But he has this argument, uh, this sort of technique of arguing in this sort of straw man way where if the interviewer goes spiritual into the spiritual sort of esoteric realm, which he often does, he will then go over to the scientific realm um, and, and vice versa. He basically just dances and jumps and ricochets. And if somebody goes broad, he goes granular. And if they go granular, he'll then go out. And he discombobulates because he can move very, very fast. But it's a really bad faith technique. It's a classic straw man uh, technique because you're distracting the person away from their central point uh, with a detail which is harder to argue. And I've watched it so many times with the various interviews he does, and he takes great delight in it, which I think is the ugliest aspect of Jordan Peterson, is he takes delight in, in the winning rather than actually the debate of ideas. What was your experience and what was your sort of headspace going into that interview? Well, funnily enough, because obviously it's ended up being such a big deal in retrospect, I've ended up having much more kind of dwelling on it much more than you normally would with an interview. You know, I've interviewed hundreds of people in my journalistic career, you know, often quite some length, but because it you know, it's one of those things where it's like people go, oh, you're always talking about it. It's like people ask me about it all the time because it's really interesting and it, like people have very different takes on it and it was kind of a moment that, you know, you don't get now. Like these the guys from the intellectual dark web don't put themselves in front of people who are going to grill them anymore, do they? Like when was the especially last time woman, you saw... Especially a smart woman. Well, that's the, yes, it, the, the funny thing is that his fans are like only like last refuge of people who think that I'm like some basically kind of communist <laughs> identitarian. It's really like they well, are you're just, just a feminist, you know? such a woke NPC. I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, great. Go and argue with the other group of people who think I'm a reactionary. Um, tell me what you come conclusion you come to in the end. But um, I did a couple of things wrong, I think, in that interview. What, well, so one, my first question obviously wound him up where I said, what is it that you're selling that so many people are buying? Which was supposed to be a kind of like, what's it all about? Like, what's the big thesis that mm. everybody's invested in? But he took massive offense to, um, as if I was accusing him of being a sort of grifter, basically. Um, so that was quite hard to recover from. And then, and I hadn't listened to this bit back for ages, when I went on Josh Zepps's podcast, a fellow Australian, yes. uh, there was a bit in the intro, which was, and, and he just kept interrupting me. And I kept, I'd sort of say something and he'd go, do you mean that? What do you mean that? But, but what about this? But what about this? Do, 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 do. And actually, I, actually, as I was listening to it, I wanted to go, just, just shut the fuck up and let me finish yeah. my point, which obviously I didn't do at the time. I think what I did eventually in the interview was I said, you, you're not, tr like one of the 12 rules for life is, you know, treat everybody as if there's someone worth listening to. I don't feel like you're doing that with me. But I should have done that much Bam. earlier. Mm. because it, because it was simply impossible to get like a point out when you were being nipped at like it was like a kind of being attacked by an angry goose i guess like <laughs> angry angry, you know sort of right exactly so it's only little nips but like you just can't keep walking while the goose is attacking yeah. your ankles it's not doing any permanent damage maybe it is but that's goose. a bad faith technique isn't it and it's well, he also put in words in my mouth, right? So he was insistent. This was a very strange line, tack line about the idea that I thought we lived in a tyrannical patriarchy. And he kept saying this. And after a while, I was talking about, I never said the word tyrannical. I just said patriarchy in the same way that I think we live under capitalism, right? Like it's a, it's a description of a social system in which women have had fewer rights traditionally than men. Society has been set up to benefit men in all these particular ways. 
And like, but it was this insistence that, oh, well, if you think it's a tyrannical patriarchy, how can you think that anything good has happened under it? Or how can you be happy about what's mm. your life under it? Which is nuts when you want to break it down, right? Like you think about the fact like antebellum slavery in America, a horrific system. But did that mean that people living individual lives had no moments of joy whatsoever? No, they did. They tried to, because that's what humans try and do, even when they're unjustly oppressed, is try and build, you know, still like families and, and, and celebrations and dances and all the things that you try and enjoy. Does that mean that slavery was okay? No, it doesn't. And, and the same thing, you know, true is that, I, and it was sort of bizarre because it, it's, it's that argument that's used against left-wingers all the time, right? That you kind of like, oh, you're so critical of capitalism and yet, you know, you take a wage right would you Hmm. want me to starve and it never gets thrown at right wingers the other way like this is somebody in Jordan Peterson who has criticized social media companies an enormous amount and yet he's still on them so why is he not a hypocrite why is he allowed to use systems and structures with which he fundamentally disagrees One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, because you went broad, you referred to something shorthand, the patriarchy, capitalism, whatever it might be, and then he went to an individual isolated example Plumbers, of- plumbers. He was very upset about pl- roving bands of plumbers. Um, and, you know, it's like it's very interesting that some, um, you know, some professions are male-dominated. The thing you could say is the fact that plumbing, a skilled manual profession, has traditionally promoted really good wages in ways that skilled manual totally. professions that were held by women, like embroidery, did not because it was assumed to be kind of pin money. So like, actually you can bring it back to arguments about, about male and female workforce participation. But yeah, I, um, so yeah, I have done a bit of post debate, um, <laughs> dark night of the soul, I guess on, on that one. But mm. I don't know. It's also quite hard because everybody's like an armchair critic and everyone thinks they probably could have done better, but that's because they got the luxury of not being there in the room having it. Cause it was also all quite a surprise to me. I didn't know how it was going to go. Um, yeah, and he wasn't the most deal back then in 2018. He he really he he had hit um, most people's radars, but the extent to which he could really um, be slippery in in interviews, I don't think was as known. 
Um, I remember you doing it and it coming out and going, oh, my God, I just have to see this. This is a brave woman. And I would encourage everybody to go and watch it. Um, so if, if only to make sure that you are at 60 million so that um, Jordan <laughs> yes. Peterson's factless out So at least 60 there. million point naught 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 one percent. Those yeah, are the people who agree with me. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Um, but it, it is a really interesting exercise in seeing how to hold your own and hold a certain stillness amongst all of these, um, this barrage of logical fallacies and, you know, sort of bad faith techniques that we see everywhere now. You kind of, I think what you did is you you didn't go emotional, right? You didn't emotionally react to his points. You tried to pull apart his arguments and go with where he was leading it, like follow his trail, which is the only thing you can do because he does dictate the line of argument. Um, would that be fair? Did you sort of really try to hold out from emotional oh, reaction? Um, imagine how terrible it would have been if I, had a, as a woman, just like burst into tears and said, you're being terribly mean to me. I know, way. I would never give someone like that the satisfaction. Or to say, that's <laughs> offensive, right? You know. Ah, well, that one I decided in advance I was not going to say. I went into it explicitly with the fact that, you know, for all that he's got a very big fan base, many of whom are very lovely people, he has also got a small and vocal subset of that fan base who are like, women are silly and emotional and they're snowflakey and he's Mr. Science and Reason. So I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to go and, I'm going to go and ask all my friends who are evolutionary biologists about lobster <laughs> evolution <laughs> so that I can learn about dopamine reception receptors in crustaceans. And then I'm going to kind of be like, well, actually, if you look, talk to a marine biologist, I'll say this, rather than saying, you know... You're implying That's that women are inferior, yeah, or whatever it might be, because he like it, it's not it's not going to impress anybody, you know. But that would be preaching to the choir, right? That would be mm. like all the people who are already predisposed to agree with me. They believe patriarchy exists. That would have been fine, but like that's that's changed no minds at all. Yeah, yeah. As I say, it's really worth going to watch. I, I what found would, it what would you have done differently? Go on. You must have. You must have thought there must have been not, a moment. Not where you much, actually. Not much. I mean, I'm going to be really honest. Um, I think you know sometimes all you can do. I, I sort of see it as a tennis game, and it, this is how I deal with trolls. But you know, I, I kind of go backwards and forwards as to whether this is the right approach. The tennis ball comes flying towards you, right? And you can put the energy in trying to serve it back to them or you can let it just land flaccidly behind you and get on with your life. He is a master of just moving it from the generalised back to the minutiae and then out to the generalised again when you're least expecting it. So I think you handled it well because you followed his breadcrumbs in a way where you kind of were the goose at his goose legs, you know. You just kind of get going, <laughs> go. But I was like, occasionally yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to nip his ankle. Yeah, okay. Mm. Mm. It's an exhausting yeah. thing to watch. I'll warn everybody, but um, it, it's masterful. And so I, I don't think I could improve, improve upon it. <laughs> that's, the worst that's the worst recommendation. <laughs> it's exhausting to watch. You must watch it. Yeah. You won't enjoy it, but you should watch it. Speaking of exhausting, let's move on to the next item on my long list of things I would love to discuss with you. At, um, at infinitum, um, the whole woke thing, okay? Now, in Australia, I suspect it's much the same in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, we're not as on top of it as, you know, the, the Americans are. I mean, it's just everywhere. Everything's, you know, got a woke angle or an anti-woke angle to it. Um, and I think here we get sort of insults from the right, you know, just, oh, that's so woke. 
but nobody really knows where it all stemmed from. Nobody knows who these woke people are that kind of are out there in this woke factory pumping out woke statements. But you were very much involved in sort of the, the, that summer of 2020 back in the US um, where this all exploded. Um, you know, it was sort of fermenting, but it really, really took off that summer in 2020. Can you talk us through the etiology of, of wokeness? Yeah, I mean, it had been used a lot earlier than that. You know, the phrase coming from uh, a lyric, I think that was, you know, I stay woke, which I think was an Erica Badu lyric. Um, but it was, was you it know, really? it was yeah, I think so. I think huh. it, it was originally, it was originally, um, you know, black American slang. Um, so it for being very, awake to the world. An alert you know. to injustice, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and it very clearly got appropriated by the right, who were delighted because obviously like political correctness was quite a lot of um, letters and now in a headline you could just put woke <laughs> instead. Um, so, you know, it's it's something that I would only ever kind of touch with tongs now. But nonetheless, I do think it describes a particular, even if it's a, a pejorative, it describes some force that people feel exists and are often very animated by. The reason I'm reluctant to use it often is because not that many people self-describe as as woke. So it's not a you know it's not a, a description of their politics that they would accept. Mm. And you know I, you know I, I I've written a lot about feminism. Is that woke? You know I I I think feminism is class-based politics essentially, like it's economic fundamentally rather than identity based. But to me, woke meant you know that you were invested in a particular narrative about kind of equity and opportunity, equality of outcome, um, all that kind of stuff. And also a kind of like left-wing illiberalism and a left-wing authoritarianism, really, that you wanted to take over institutions and ensure that they were not the liberal, but that they were correct um, yeah. and, 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 and use them for ideological purposes. Now, you know, look, you might say that's politics. Brilliant. Like if, if you're the left and you can't win through the ballot box because you can't muster the votes, then you want to achieve your um, political aims. Maybe culture is the instrument to do that and take advantage of the fact that, you know, the creative class is much usually much more left-wing than on the general population on average. Back summer 2020, what happened specifically then just to see it all implode? I think a collision of lots of things, which is the fact that Black Lives Matter had been simmering for a long time in America. You know, the murder of Trayvon Martin, you know, he's a young kid who's walking home with a packet of Skittles and a hoodie and he's basically just you know, shot dead by a self-appointed neighborhood watchman, you know, that, that all that kind of thing, the idea among black Americans that the police weren't there to help them, uh, you know, they couldn't rely on them, which goes back to the time when, you know, quite a lot of local police chiefs were also members of the Klan, quite frankly, like Mm. it's, it's a really deep historical wound. So that kind of collided with a new sort of sense of activism among employees in their 20s you know that they had graduated perhaps into um a really tough job market and they kind of expected to have a lot more influence in companies than their perhaps better paid you know people 10 years above them who were just thought you took your money and you you know you did what you were told and then that ran into the then covid which in america particularly freaked people out if if they were liberal because they thought is donald trump competent to address this crisis i think Mm. he's not and, you know, and the fact that they knew that lots of their fellow citizens didn't feel any sense of collective responsibility. You know, they were incredibly individualistic. They probably weren't going to take a vaccine. All of that stuff, um, you know, people being sent home from work, living in very small apartments, you know, not seeing their friends. You know, we, we've talked about the, the, 
the twitches that people ended up on the internet. You know, that was a lockdown problem as much as anything else, you know. People falling down conspiracy rabbit holes was a lockdown problem. I mean, it's one that they're still in the rabbit holes now, right? But it was fundamentally, for all that it was necessary in order to contain the spread of the virus, it was not good for lots of people to spend all their time looking at a screen and not seeing their, their friends for, for months or weeks. Um, so I think all of that gelled together. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic called The Guggenheim Scapegoat about the way that played out in an art museum in New York. And you see this incredible collision of liberal elite white guilt and the occasional you know, chaotic actor being introduced into that system at a time when people aren't able to get together in person. And it kind of kicked off this incredible sort of, I don't know, like almost sort of Lord of the Flies kind of sense of just everything was out of control. And there was a sort of, you know, like sort of chemical thing going on that somebody had to, somebody had to be held responsible for all this terrible stuff. And who was it going to be? Was it going to be you? Well, no, but if you denounce someone else, then it wasn't going to be you. So, you know, and I just remember thinking. It was an employee, wasn't it, who came out and said something and then. Yeah, there was an exhibition um, of a a uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat painting called Defacement, which is about police brutality against a young black artist in the 1980s. And the lead curator, Nancy Spector, had got in a young guest curator called Chedra Le Bouvier um, to kind of guest curate this, this exhibition. And Le Bouvier ended up accusing Spector of, of, of being racist towards her. Bouvier, uh, Spector was cleared by the investigation, but that didn't matter. She ended up getting hoofed out anyway at the age of 60-odd. So really, you know, kind of, she was never going to operate at that level again in her career. And it was just, it was just kind of no one really could understand quite how it had happened, but it had happened. And there was a lot of office politics, I felt, that was not necessarily pure, mm. you know, the burning dream of anti-racism. It was a lot more like sort of cardinals plotting against each other than I think people would like to acknowledge. And, you know, I really do kind of buy the argument that the way that diversity, equity and inclusion has been misused in some companies is mm. as a kind of extra test for people like us like a kind of etiquette test rather than anything else, right? That it's a kind of upper professional middle-class value that you understand what all the right words to use are and all the right things to say are. And I'm not sure it's necessarily always the best judge of like who is the most open, welcoming employer, you know, who pays their staff best, who actually genuinely has real diversity of hiring practices. It's more like a sort of Versailles-style etiquette code when it goes wrong, I think. It also serves as a lot of corporate and community association ask covering, you know, mm, like mm. You, we've got to have all these work practices in place and everybody's got to do the dance so that we don't land in trouble. It, it remind well, two things that spring to mind. First of all, I interviewed Rob Henderson on this podcast. He's a Cambridge academic, quite a young guy who mm. worked his way up from, I think he was a foster kid, lived on the streets, all that kind of thing, and then entered this elite, you know, English sort of university world, and he's talked a lot about this, how woke woke culture benefits, uh, doesn't benefit those that it's meant to be protecting. It's become something quite different. Um, and I think that's, a, you know, that's a one direction that it's all headed in. I'm reminded of just recently the Australian, uh, sorry, the Associated Press, um, ooh, what was it? Their their guidelines. Their, oh, people their... experiencing Frenchness. Oh, yeah, that's it. That was, and that was a very love, funny tweet. I love how it took the French to uh, bring this to the surface. But yes, for anyone who who missed this this piece of news, this wonderful moment in pop culture, the Associated Press put together their sort of guidelines. They do this. They update it regularly for for journalists and so on. Um, and um, they put out this sort of 
memo that you've got to remove the word the. So we're talking the mentally ill or the college educator because it disenfranchises, blah, blah, blah. And they included as one of their examples the French. And I think was it the French embassy over in the US came out and declared that they were now being called the embassy of Frenchness. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because some of it um, I think is is kind of reasonable. I For all the... I don't know if you know the work of John McWhorter, one of the great critics of, of wokeness. In fact, wrote a book called Woke Racism. He wrote a very good piece because he's a, a linguist, that's his linguistics professor, saying that he actually really agreed with the shift from slave to enslaved person. Because it did try and remind you that this was somebody who was a person who had a thing happen to them, right? It didn't, they weren't just a, a unit of, of property. And mm. I remember thinking, do you know what? Actually, he's really convinced me on that one. Like from now on, I will say enslaved person. I think it's a perfectly reasonable request. But you're right, there is a lot of kind of, if only we change the language, um, it's a really substantive change. And, and what actually more often happens is there's a euphemism treadmill, which is the underlying concept is still stigmatized. So you just update the language. Um, and then that becomes, because it's the thing, you know, it's like people experiencing homelessness. It's true, but I'm not sure that it actually, because most people still think it's bad to be homeless. I'm not sure it does that much work, really. No, I think most people who are people without homes <laughs> um, would just rather we concentrate on finding a home for them. I think that's the point, right? And I, I read this recently. Um, is it is it Latinx or Latina X? How do you how are you meant to say it? I believe it's Latinx, but yes, basically nobody who is Hispanic, Cares. Spanish speaking in America refers to themselves like something like two percent, three percent, and I was just three percent. Yeah, I was just in Florida reporting from um, Miami, which has got a huge Spanish-speaking, you know, um, diaspora from, and people will call themselves Cuban or Nicaraguan, right? They actually don't even really like. Sometimes they will say Latin, sometimes they will say Hispanic, but actually, more often to them, it's their original, you know, family home country that is the meaningful identity label, rather than mm. this kind of much, much bigger grouping. Um, mm. Yeah, I know. I love that. Some of that stuff's very funny. It is. It is. But I suppose the pendulum swung, right? And it needed to swing to a certain extent. And when pendulums swing, um, there's a correction. You know, it's got to swing back a little bit till we find the sweet spot. And that's what we're in the middle of at the moment. And, you know, I was speaking to the actress Yael Stone. She's in Orange is the New Black. She's an Australian actress, but she's done really well over in, in Hollywood. And we were just talking about all of this. And she said, I kind of love it. I'm finding it fascinating. I like that we're living in these times, we're adjusting, we're trying to work it all out, we're getting it wrong. Um, and so that's how, rather than going crazy around it, I'm actually trying to see it as just interesting times. How fascinating. Let's see where this all ends up. Well, Tyler Cohen, the economist who runs mm. Marginal Revolutions, is a very popular book, had made a similar argument, which is one of the most convincing arguments I've ever seen, saying, frankly, do we think the world net could do with more wokeness? And I, mean, I think he formulated it as like, if America's going to export anything, you know, this is going to be the kind of dominant cultural paradigm. Isn't this quite a good one? Do we not think that, if anything, Saudi Arabia could stand to be a bit more woke? I think was genuinely how he put it. And it's very, yeah. it's very true. Like, if if social liberalism is is part of what we're exporting around the world, then I, I'm in favour of that because it does seem to be that it's increasing the sum of human happiness if countries overturn their laws against homosexuality or their laws against women working or driving or whatever it might be. Mm. It is also valid that no one really knows anymore who hates the woke the most, right? Like the left or the right, it's like everybody's just hating hating on the woke. Um, well, there's just far more anti-woke people than there are woke people. This is what I think is interesting, right? So you know, my analysis of that movement 
is that it has been very good at capturing certain sections of elite um, professional middle class. So, you know, publishing is absolutely full of people who've got their pronouns in their bio. Um, some some bits of journalism are, uh, you know, government institutions, you know, taking Stonewall trainings, that kind of thing. But film there's as also well, the film realm as well. Yeah, lots of yeah, lots of things like that where it has become essentially another kind of. Well, you know, I was just thinking like J.K. Rowling's not getting invited to the Oscars anytime soon, is she? Right even despite the fact that her film franchises are like some of the most popular in history. Um, but you get this, at the same time, this huge counterweight of the anti-woke industry. There's just a lot of money to be made. And, you know, some of them, like you were talking about Russell Brand, is, I think he's a rare in- example of a kind of alt-left uh, podcaster, blogger, whatever you want to call him. True. Now. You know, most of them are on firmly on the on the right uh, with those kind they of didn't start contrarian... Out that way takes on on quite only on vaccines in, in Ukraine right there's not that many he's 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 the most successful person I would say is broadly on the left who is coming out with those you know is Russia really the bad guy here and do we really know what's in the vaccine takes yeah I mean a lot of them did start out left right um I think the well, Weinsteins go on who well, the Weinsteins claim to have to a certain extent um I've also watched Lex Friedman he was sort of left leaning and is swinging, you know, he hangs out with Joe Rogan too much, I think. I think that's more like the, 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 we had this great debate when I was at the New Statesman about <laughs> who won the 20th century, the left or the right. It was really interesting because <laughs> it's one of those questions that's kind of obviously absurd in the sense that, you know, um, fascism was defeated, but then so was communism, capitalism was won. So is that now right wing, you know, did right wing economic policies, but we kind of settled on the idea that the right had won economically and the left had won on culture. Yeah, and right. I guess where they all started off is the sense that they were all personally chill, like with other people being gay, or other people being unmarried. You know, they weren't traditional social conservatives. What I don't know if any of those people were, were I believe in, you know, incredibly redistributive taxes or I believe in much stronger labor unions, right? That's the thing. I think it was okay. a kind of almost like, you know, social liberal libertarianism to some extent, like, don't, you know, don't tell other people what to do, don't interfere with me and my life, which manifests itself in really good ways, right? And that wasn't one of the things that people felt in the end about gay marriage. It's like, does it bother me if two guys or two women get married? It's no skin off my nose. But I'm mm. not sure they were left in the sense that I would think of myself as left-wing, in that, like, I believe in a welfare system. I mean, some of this is being about being European rather than American, you know, but, like, I believe in higher rates of inheritance tax, I believe in redistributive taxation, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Having women on your podcasts, you know. I believe in the greatest oppression of all, which is the, frankly, yeah, (laughs) the oppression of women outside podcasts. But it's good. I mean, it's interesting though, because I bet you, do you make a, 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 do you try and have 50-50 male and female guests? Yeah, I do. It's it's not that I try to. I think just my interest, um, you know, is is evenly divided. A bit like yourself, having grown up as a a Murdoch, trainee, a newspaper uh, cadet, I grew up in a very male, you know, my career started in a very male realm. So I've got, you know, I follow both male and female writers. I mean, you you would have um, come across those statistics that show that, you know, men read 90%, but 90% of the books they read are written by men, for, you know, 10% by women. And for women, it's about 60% women, 40% Men and of course they read a lot more books. So you know, and I think it's, you know, men consume male artwork, they consume male podcasts, all of that kind of thing. What I do find is it is actually hard to find a women who are prepared to come on to a podcast and put themselves out there, and b um, 
women who have developed that galaxy brain approach where they will go out there and speak out on whatever it is that they're, they're you know, they're talking about, qualified or otherwise, um, and haven't always, they might do some really great work, but they haven't necessarily produced the blockbuster book or all that kind mm. of thing. So it, they're harder to find is what I'm trying to say. And um, so, No, yeah, I definitely I find that because I, you know, I have a, an interview series that I do for the BBC and you are besieged with men who have written the big book. You know mm-hmm. the big like lead hardback title with a big thought, um, and, and I, I think that yeah, those those still are the kind of province of uh, of men to some extent. But also, I think there's this really interesting thing, which is um, you know personal bugbear of mine, which is if you're a woman and you're in any way kind of controversial, that is used entirely to define and dismiss you, so people don't have to listen to you on any other subject in a way that I don't think happens to the same extent with men. So it's like you can have one, like it's like you've been on probation the entire time. Oh, wrong think. And then like, oh, well, sorry, we would have listened to you, but she's a bad, she's a bad person. That's and it doesn't, it, we really don't do that to men in the same way, I don't think. They are allowed well, to be rounded human beings. That's absolutely right. I've actually found that on a personal level and I live and breathe it. I was the sugar girl, you know, who wrote about sugar. Um, and I wasn't allowed to write about it then because, I was a journalist, you know, um, how come you're allowed to do this? Then I moved into um, the realm of sort of writing about anxiety and sociological perspectives on it. And they were like, well, just stick to your sugar lady. Like that's what, you know, you're basically allowed one lane. Um, And if you speak out or move your career onto the next thing, um, it's a real problem. And you're just, you you really are perceived as ill-equipped and you're also perceived sort of as difficult. You've thrown the status quo. You've you've rocked the boat, you know. And um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, you'd know all about this. You wrote a book with the title in it, right? I did, but it's also a bit about like getting above yourself. Like, who does she think she is that she would be listening to? Right. Here in Australia, you can be an ex-footballer, and you can come out and you can be on panel shows talking about all kinds of things, politics, wokeness, whatever it might be. But you know. As a woman, uh, that's just not possible, you know. Like if you think about all the reality stars, the men who were just, you know, reality TV stars who can come out and be experts, Andrew Tate being one example, um, you just don't, you're not allowed that rite of passage as a woman. Yeah, I listened to a a gaming podcast today that um, a friend sent me, which I (laughs) regret listening to now, which they start talking at the end about um, J.K. Rowling. And one of them says, it's two men and a woman, and one of them says, I don't see why the option was always there for you to just shut the fuck up. And I just thought this so interesting, because I'm sure that guy thinks he's incredibly progressive. But actually, his response to a woman having an opinion he disagreed with was, why did she even say that? Why did she She leave the house in the morning? Right, mm. she could have just kept quiet and then we'd have all liked her, but no, she had to go and say something and be something that I didn't like. And it was so unbelievably misogynist. Mm. And I just I've, thought, you have no idea how misogynist you're being. That's the worst thing about this. I've spent way too much time thinking about what a female Andrew Tate would look like. Would she be allowed to walk this planet? Like, I don't think she could actually surface. I mean, in a way, you sort of want to pay someone to do it as a piece of performance art, really, and just say, <laughs> look, the thing about men is they die earlier. So are they really nature's winners? Mm. I think not. They need to be told what to do. Um, <laughs> it would just be, can you imagine how people people would lose their shit? Could you write the script for this performance piece? It would be piece? absolutely incredible. But you know what I mean? Like, it, like you know, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I wanted to write um, a book about feminism for people who had encountered it, which I felt was the state of most of 2010s. You know, there's a lot of pop feminism around. But actually, how, where was the bit where you learned the next bit about where it kind of came from and what the origins were, what the big fights were? And I think it's always interesting to talk about fights because you're talking then about social change and how do you make that happen? And I think that, you know, it can be very, as we talk about performative activism, the kind of cure for that is actually you know, and for movement splitting is to have an idea of what it is that you want. Like, what does the what does the utopia look like? And for me, the utopia when it comes to gender, right, is that everybody is free to dress how they want, express themselves how they want. People don't get harassed in the street for their, you know, their gender expression. All of that kind of stuff. Like, those are the kind of goals that I, I have in mind. And that helps me understand always how I want to behave in a particular situation. I'm not attached to a particular label. Um, but this is so, you know, Difficult Women was an attempt to say how did these big things like the vote, the right to divorce the right to attend a university, you know, who were the women who won them and how did they win those fights? And a consistent theme that came across is that, yeah, but they're being difficult. So, um, you know, Erin Pitsy, who founded the first um, domestic violence refuge in the world, she was just an absolute battering ram, complete force of nature. They squatted that first house, you know, and the council didn't, like, give them any any help at all. She just went, we're we're doing it and we're going to have volunteers. We're going to go and do it and DIY it. Um, You know, and that is the kind of, she felt very alienated from what she felt at the very kind of blue stocking university based feminist movement, what she sort of thought was the kind of blue haired Marxists, which is very funny to the echoes of that today. And, and, and yeah. to the extent that she was pushed out so far, she's eventually became a, a men's rights activist. Or That's somebody right. like the, the Pankhursts, you know, um, Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters, Christopher and Sylvia. Christabel and Emmeline were monomaniacal. If you remember the Women's Social and Political Union, you couldn't also do anything else. And there were big causes right. around at the time. Home Rule for Ireland, from one being one example. You know, but you couldn't do that. You couldn't be, you know, um, I think Sylvia, what finally got her kicked out was appearing on a platform with Keir Hardy, who had just founded the Independent Labour Party. So you couldn't also do socialism. You know, yeah, you it was know, suffragettes you were... or bust, wasn't it? Like, right, I never exactly. knew that until I read, yeah, read, yeah. read your book on it. Mm. But it, but that is, and I think that still now seems quite um, revolutionary. Like there was a, a mad op-ed by the head of Planned Parenthood all of last year saying we're now going to become a racial justice organisation. And I was just like, what are you, are you on glue? Because you should absolutely take into account particularly the fact that maternal mortality among black women in America is far higher than among white women. There are specific issues, you know, that are inflected by race and everything that you do fine. But you, you, do, the, you do Planned Parenthood right? Do that in a racially aware way. That's really good. And then, of course, this year we have in America the Dobbs decision, Roe versus Wade is overturned, lots of states immediately trigger bans on abortion. Oh, do you know what would have been really handy? If there had been an, an like a women's reproductive rights organization that was actually paying attention last year instead of having this mad self-flagellating crusade about why it wasn't doing all these other social justice issues as well. And I think that's, that's one of the things I, I still credit the Pankhurst for, is they went, women are, like, the, the vote for women, that's, that's worth that's worth it. We're, we're just, that's what we're doing. We're doing that yeah. first. It's um, interesting though, you make the point, I think at some point that, you know, Winston Churchill was notorious pain in the ass. Like he was difficult, right? But he got his job done in part because he was forceful. Um, he had, you know, far ranging ideas. He, he did stuff that other people found uncomfortable. Um, but, you know, as women, and I think the black movement also suffers from this as well. We have to be the perfect examples of the feminine to be able to make these points in a palatable way. Uh, We have to be nice. 
you know, and and I respectable, right? That's another one I think. And I think if you're going to talk in the kind of Australian context about um, Indigenous people's rights, the idea of respectability and objectivity and putting on a suit and all of that kind of stuff, right, is really like no, you have this is how you have to appear to be taken seriously. And there's a version of that for for women, and you're right for for civil rights too. That Mm. is uh, ape the style of the majority as much as you possibly can because that's what we think authority looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, your your book paints a very different picture of it all. I love it, you know. It yeah, takes difficult well, people to to change the world. Yeah, it was um, a fun one to write and I, I felt like I learned a lot doing it. And also I felt a lot better about feminism by the end of it because I was like, wow, this is a movement that's got some shit done. If you yeah. think about the status of women in 1870, you know, not allowed to go to university in the UK, not allowed to vote in the UK, um, I've just been making a, a presentation ready for some students in Switzerland who I'm talking to later this week. <laughs> Would you like to guess when Switzerland finally, finally the last canton allowed women to vote in all its elections? I'm going to say 1990 because I suspect it's a ludicrous answer. You're entirely correct. It is 1990. Yeah, oh, wow. federal elections in in 1971, and then the last, <laughs> like the last holdout, were, because they had a system where all the men had to essentially vote individually in every little tiny region to say that it was okay, yes, women could have the vote. And it's just like, oh, my God. Mm, in in case Switzerland. the work's done, yeah, yeah. But I think Australia did pretty well, right? Australia was quite an early one to the voting women South party. Australia was the first place in the world to give women the vote. New Zealand was the first country. Mm. Mm. So, yeah, no, we... we, we <laughs> and then we kind of stalled, right? Yeah. Like culture just stayed there. We thought They thought, Let, we've done this much, let's just relax for a bit. Um, hey, your new book is called Selfish Genius. We touched on it at the top of this podcast, which seems like a long time ago. Um, you sort of expose a bunch of myths about how creativity and invention comes about. And, again, it really sort of um, touches on sort of the female experience in in so many of the inventions that we take for granted these days. Can you just um, do a bit of a selling on your book? How do you tell your mum? <laughs> How do you tell your mum what this book's about? Well, it's a bit of a kind of interrogation of the great man theory of history, really. Um, I've tried to not explicitly write another gender-based book, but it is inevitably going to have some of that in it because our, so many of our templates of what geniuses are, are are men. But the essential argument is that genius is not an objective quality. There is no standard of genius. So a huge amount of it is about self-mythologization, not just mythology, but self-mythologization. What are the stories that we tell ourselves about genius? So one of them I think that's really kind of happens a lot is the idea of what I call the deficit model of genius. The idea that great achievement has this cost is intuitively appealing to us. And you see that in a film like, uh, do you know, Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe as as John Nash. So he was schizophrenic, but also a brilliant mathematician. And so the idea is that you get this brain, but the cost of it is that you're seeing people all the time. Um, and then, you know, the imitation game is a bit like that with Alan Turing and his, you know, his social awkwardness and his, you know, lost love, but that, but that's the price he pays for the big brain. Um, the theory of everything is my third example, right? Which is Stephen Hawking, get this brilliant brain, but here's the cost. And that really just intuitively appeals to us. And those people are, are like much more likely to get held as geniuses and people who are kind of equally smart. You know, you can think of someone like Roger Penrose who had breakthroughs and physics that were just as interesting as Stephen Hawking's, but there wasn't a story. There wasn't a mythology. He was a guy who had some theories. And so what I wanted to try and understand in all of that was, was how genius functions in society, which I'm sorry, makes it sound a bit 
dry, but but also yeah. the idea that people love, and this kind of comes back to gurus as well, right? People like love looking at the same person that everyone else is looking at. You know, we're all kind of group animals in that sense. So people do pick up more and more um, authority. And then the fact that the kind of idea of the torture genius and the way that that's exploited sometimes by people to be like, I'm a genius, so I don't have to play by the normal rules of society. And those people often are, you know, can be very exploitative or parasitical. You know, the prime example probably being somebody like Picasso, right? And actually the dark thing about Picasso is the fact that he ruined the lives of so many people around him kind of becomes part of the appeal because it's kind of like, wouldn't we all love to live like that, answering, you know, living completely as we wanted, these lives of kind of complete untrammeled ids and no responsibility. But we can't because we've got to, you know, kids and Be jobs nice. and all that kind of stuff. So there is a kind of wish fulfillment about the kind of sort of sadism and selfishness of, of a Picasso, I think. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I'm not sure that we've managed to create too much of a theme here. I think maybe if there's a theme from my line of questioning, it really... Um, ends up here that humans are weird they seem to be getting weirder or and more infuriated and I don't know that's the case but whether it's just that we've got to endure more of them because we're exposed to more of them in social media feeds but I'm wondering Helen Lewis how you manage all of this this high exposure to the, the just full-on craziness of life right now can I just ask a few questions they're sort of like how do you manage your sanity type questions um, are there any practices that you take part in, like, I don't know, dopamine fasting or putting your phone in one of those locked bins or deleting your Twitter account, which is, you know, very, very fashionable at the moment? Is there anything that you do to sort of stop the influx of information? Yeah, I, um, I, I, I'm not on Facebook. I left Facebook I, fully five years ago and never missed it a beat. I haven't tweeted now for two months. I'm hopefully I'm now clean. I'm hopefully I'm clean forever. <laughs> I'm, I'm keeping it up in case I need to contact sources, you know, on it, you know, mm. it can be very useful for finding people. Same. So I'm not kind of saying I've, I've quit forever, but um, I didn't enjoy that by the end. So I've, I've given that up. Um, going to the gym. <laughs> these are all, these are like the most basic. I, I should be, I know I should be saying that actually I like to you know fast for a month and meditate Hmm. for five hours a day but no um very basic stuff like trying to spend as much time in the real world as possible um the only productivity tip that i use that works for me is the pomodoro technique which is like setting your timer for 25 minutes because then it's like well i can do 25 minutes 25 minutes is fine i can do um and and i wrote about that i think about 10 years ago um and you can you've got the little widget on the on your computer where you do it and it just sets it for no i I do it on my phone i'm 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 even more old school than than that but yeah you could have one of those tomatoes you could actually have an old school tomato and do it that way that would be old school yeah yeah yeah, that does work. Work for Ray Bradbury. He was able to pump out that book um, pretty fast in his library. You know that that's where it started, that whole thing? No, I did he not know that. Mr Pomodoro dude who invented that technique, he'd observed that Ray Bradbury had written his book, and I always get it wrong, I'm really bad with numbers, Fahrenheit, what's the number? 451. Thank you. He I wrote think, that yeah. as a really poor um, sort of new dad. He went to the public library and you had to put a dime on the typewriter to sort of save your spot, right? So you were allowed to type for 20 minutes. So you'd type, 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 and then your time had come up and somebody would come in and use the typewriter. And what he'd then do is wander around the library, just sort of picking up random books and blah, 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 waiting for his next turn on typewriters. And that's how he pumped out the book in this record amount of time. That's where the theory comes from. 
Do you know that is my and if anyone listening is, is is trying to write, that is my other thing is that you have to do the the if you've done enough of the work in your brain, the writing is much easier. Trying to write before you're ready to write is the world's most soul-destroying experience because it just won't come out because you don't have the fluency to feel like you're totally in command of the subject. So mm. you have to brew it for a long time first, I find. Mm. Um, I find about three and, to five years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so far, about 30 years. But you know what I mean? Like, And also that there's only a certain amount you can write a day and actually after that you'd be better off just going and having a walk and thinking about it rather than sitting there mm. staring at your screen wishing that you were dead for any longer. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that I think is really useful is the idea of parking downhill. Have you had come across this? No. It's when you're in the middle of writing something, you have a thought and you stop wherever you are, you know, still with something left to say, so that the next morning you can get up and you already know what the first paragraph you're going to type is or whatever it is, which is parking yeah. downhill. Just makes it okay. easy to get so back into. So you just into. have to release the brake and off you roll. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I'll, I'll try that one. Um, hey, good luck with everything. Good luck with your COVID um, healing <laughs> and good luck with finishing that book, um, thinking and getting the words down. Thank you very much. Right. On this occasion, I'm really not going to add anything further to that conversation because it was long uh, and it was intense in a really, really good way, I think. Um, but I will say you can join Helen and I over at my Substack. This is precious and have a look in the show notes for the correct link. It's it is sarahwilson.substack.com, not too hard to, to find. Um, and we talk through a bunch of different productivity tips that keep us sane. Um, she really thought about hers and, um, I like what she shares. Anyway, join in on that conversation. Uh, I'll be posting it up on Friday, two days after this podcast goes up. Anyway, until next time when I will be joined by another wild guest. Please keep it real and keep it wild. are on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.